happy, happy Wednesday to you. Hope you guys had a good day. Um, first thing I want to do is ask our ushers to come forward for our weekly tithes and offering. Um, for those who have come prepared to give, um, thank you for your faithfulness. You can go ahead and pass the plates as those come by here. Um, if you picked up a bulletin on your way and everyone get one of those, uh, please take a look at a couple things in there. There are some announcements of a few things coming up on the back. And I want to say now, in case I forget at the end, this uh, we're kind of wrapping up this series. This has been a four-week series. And next week we're going to be starting a new series looking at the question of what, what is Christianity all about? Uh, we're going to take six weeks and just try to say, okay, if, if we had to say, what are, what are maybe, if I only had six conversations with someone about what does it mean to really follow Jesus, which I think is a good uh, follower to this current series, what might I say? What might you say? And so we want to kind of explore that and look at that <clears throat> as we go. Um, before we get into this evening's topic, I, I want to make um, an apology. Last week... Um, I've said before, as one of our goals in doing this series on is, is Mormonism Christian is to say we want to speak the truth in love. We want to be able to be equipped to reach out to our Mormon friends and neighbors in a, in a compelling way. And um, not in what I said, but last week, I think a, a couple times in the tone in which I spoke, it, it was um, maybe sarcasm. It, 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 it wasn't necessarily the compelling Jesus model that I want to be. And I even had someone kind of point. They said it nicer than that. They, they said it in a nicer way, but they were right. And so I just want to say if to, to anyone who, who might have kind of picked up on some of that sarcasm or anything like that, I, I apologize. I, I confess that, that that was wrong. That's not the model that, that I want to live. You know, Paul... Paul used this line one time in one of his letters. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. Meaning, insofar as I am mimicking Jesus, mimic me. <laughs> I, I think the obvious side is to the degree that I'm not, don't mimic me. And um, last week, I kind of feel like I wanted a few places I want to go, don't, don't mimic me. Because uh, I, don't, I don't think I necessarily lived out that, that model. So I, I apologize for that. Um, Tonight, what I want to do is uh, wrap up this series, looking at this question of, is Mormonism Christian? And um, two weeks ago, uh, one thing that I had mentioned was this idea that any time that, that you sit down and, and engage with your Mormon neighbor or, or friend or someone who comes to your door, one of the questions that, that will be asked almost immediately and sometimes repeatedly is, would you be willing to pray over the Book of Mormon? Would you be willing to read this and then pray and ask God if this is not his word? And if you pray with a sincere heart and with real intent, that the Holy Spirit will reveal that to you. And a couple of weeks ago, I said, I, I think there are two biblical reasons to not do that. And the first one, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, was this idea that actually the biblical model for discerning or determining new revelation it's not prayer to receive a subjective feeling but as in we see in acts chapter 17 with the bereans it's to take what might be new scripture and compare it to what we know is true and if it lines up with it and that's what we see paul saying that the bereans were more noble than the thessalonians he said because they accepted it but 
they accepted Paul's words, the gospel, but only after deeply investigating the Hebrew scriptures to be sure that this Jesus really was the fulfillment, that it really lined up with what was already there. But um, a second reason that I, I want to give, um, and I said I would give one and I kind of put it off here until the last week, is uh, a, another reason not to uh, pray and seek a spiritual sign um, or the, the phrase that, that our LDS friends will use is to receive a burning in the bosom. This, this sort of, uh, I've, I've heard Mormons talk about it as almost feeling like hot wax is, is like just being poured over one's head and one's shoulder. It's this warming, um, feeling in their body. Um, here's, here's another reason not to. Let me read for you, uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. The book of Galatians, Paul's writing to the church at Galatia, and uh, biblical theologians will, will note, if you ever read a commentary, they'll say, this book, how it starts out, is kind of weird, because almost every letter that Paul writes, it always starts out by saying, I thank God for you, I'm so grateful for what he's done in your life, I'm glad, sort of giving thanks. That's a common, if you've ever read any of Paul's letters. This is the one that deviates from that. And he starts like this, Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. He says, Paul, an apostle. He always starts by saying who he is. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God to the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me. And then here would be the typical, so glad, I, I thank God every day, I think of you. And immediately, almost immediately, he goes into this concern language of like, Hold on. I am I am worried. Verse six, he says this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turning to. And here's a key phrase. That I want you to remember and maybe jot this down. This is what we're talking about. I, I, I am concerned. He says that you've turned from the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. Think about about that phrase. You're turning to a different gospel. And then he says in verse seven, which is really no gospel at all. He's doing a play on words. Gospel can be the idea of good news or a herald of good news. He says you're receiving a different good news, which really isn't good news at all. He says evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the pervert the gospel of Christ. But now listen to this warning. This is key as we think about as we think about Mormonism, we think about the story, the history of Joseph Smith and the revelation that he uh, purported to receive. He says, um, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, how was it that Joseph Smith purported to have received um, knowledge of these golden plates and this new revelation, which is um, named another testament of Jesus Christ? How did he receive it? Do you remember? What was it? Yeah. 1823, the angel appears to him. He has an appearance of an angel in his bedroom who tells him ultimately of another testament of Jesus Christ. Or you could say of another gospel. Paul warns that he says, even if I come to you 
If I come to you, or if an angel, if you have this appearance, this experience, this maybe burning of the bosom, he might say, whatever it might be, no matter what your subjective experience tells you, if it is a different gospel than than the one you received, or as uh, he says in his letter to Jude, where he says, if it's different than the faith once for all entrusted to you, if it's any different than it, he says, let that person be under God's curse. Now, if you kind of go, man, that's, that's harsh. Well, you know where he got that from? He's an apprentice of this guy named Jesus. In Jesus chapter 18, Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, he's talking about a person who's young in their faith. Those who believe in me, if, he, if anyone causes any one of these people to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. <laughs> wow, that's serious, right? What he's saying is, if there really is only one hope for your life, and if it's this person of Jesus, anyone who tries to pervert that is doing the greatest evil that they could possibly do in the world. First um, Timothy chapter 4, we read this. The Holy Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, you could translate that latter days, some will abandon and follow deceiving spirits and things Taught by demons. Demons can teach theology? Yeah. According to Paul, demons actually traffic in falsehood. I would suggest the primary way that spiritual warfare takes place, and I think Paul would agree with me, I'll give you an example here. The primary way that spiritual warfare takes place in our world is on the level of truth and falsehood. Ideas. Listen to 2 Corinthians 10.4. This is probably one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. That's high um, spiritual warfare language. Okay? Listen to this. Listen to the words. 2 Corinthians 10.4. Paul says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Okay, we're not fighting guns and tanks and arrows and that sort of stuff. So what are we fighting with? He says, on the contrary, they, meaning the weapons that we have, they have a divine power to demolish strongholds. Whew, that sounds big. So I wonder what these weapons are that we're fighting with and what we're fighting against. Well, here's what he describes what it is. We demolish arguments. Huh? That's spiritual? Mm-hmm. We uh, demolish arguments and every pretension. That's an idea that is set up to be true, but it's false. That sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The way that God has chosen to, for us to engage in our world in spiritual warfare with weapons that have divine power is through arguments, pretensions, and thoughts. Isn't that interesting? And we're told that demons actually traffic in false ideas and deception. So, here's what you can say to your, your, your Mormon friend who asks you to, to pray about the book and to receive a testimony. The reality is, I could be around a table and have my Buddhist friend and my Muslim friend. Muslims pray five times a day. They get a testimony. And I could have my Jehovah's Witness friend and my Mormon friend. And we could all be sitting around. And all of us could have a testimony that is a subjective experience of some feeling or emotion or, or even a real experience, something that, that happened that would, that would subjectively say, I think this is accurate. But subjective feelings can never be the, ter- the determiner, according to Scripture, of truth. 
Which gets back to our first point. The biblical model of testing new truth is what? Compare it to old truth. To compare it to what you know is straight. Right? You compare a wall that if you're not sure to a level that you sure is straight. First John 4, 1 John 4.1 John writes, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So apparently there are spirits which are not from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He says there are false prophets out there who are uh, trafficking using false spirits and they traffic in the area of arguments and pretensions and thoughts. And that's spiritual warfare. So here's the question that I want us to really ask tonight. And this is this is a very, very practical um, evening. I, I hope it will be anyway. Um, is that, okay, so how do I spot groups, movements, individuals, which would kind of fall in this area of maybe a, a pseudo-Christian religion, a, a false Christian religion in some way? Let me, let me give you a definition that I think is pretty good of, of a false Christian religion, a, a, a counterfeit Christian religion or a pseudo-Christian religion. A pseudo-Christian religion is a group of people gathered around a leader, and this could be a group of leaders or an organization or whatever it might be, who while claiming to be the true Christian church and teach true Christianity, they actually distort or deny essential Christian beliefs. The kind of essential Christian beliefs that without which, you know, you don't, you don't even have Christianity. Um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and I would really, really encourage you guys to get uh, one of the resources that I mentioned was Watchman Fellowship. If you picked up that, that profile, oh, here it is. Um, if you picked up one of these profiles, this, this was put out by Watchman Fellowship. They have made just, I don't know, maybe hundreds of these profiles on different religious movements, religious leaders, sects, practices, ideas, which have direct impact in this area. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful ministry. You can, you can download those profiles for free. You can support them like just you know, 10 bucks a year, and you just get these profiles sent to you in the mail. They're great, great resources. But here's the challenge there are hundreds of groups out there. There are thousands of groups out there. So what I want to look at tonight is are there, are there some elements, because if you read this book or that book, you're, you know, these are the 10 characteristics of false religions or the 15 characteristics of the 20, and they don't always like it works for this group and not for that one. What I want to do is I want to give you something that 10 years from now you will be, you'll, you'll be able to remember even after tonight as far as ways to spot these kind of aberrant Christian religious groups. And if, if you've uh, taken math in the elementary area, I told you before I despise math and I hate math. The only thing that I could do is add, subtract, multiply, and divide. That was that, that I like maxed. Right there, that was like the max of my capability. Um, if, if, if you can get this idea, and this is what I want to go through tonight, is that groups that add to the word of God, subtract from the person of Jesus, multiply the requirements of salvation, and divide their followers' loyalty, those are, that's it. Those are the key elements of what these false religious groups tend to do that you will be able to spot immediately. 
And so I want to walk through these four tonight. If you can get them all down, we'll walk through each one of them here and look at some examples specifically about uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, looking at a few other examples, if you remember um, week one, we talked about that there are really three American homegrown religions. And they all came out at the same time and around the same area. Uh, the Jehovah's Witness in 1888, the Mormons in 1830, and then uh, uh, the Christian science, which kind of has a, has a different flavor to it, but we'll, we'll kind of mention all of, all of those here this evening. So here's the first thing to do. If you have your notes, if you want to write any notes in there, the first thing that these groups tend to do is add to the Word of God. Now, um, there are a couple ways that this happens, two ways at least, that I'll suggest. The first is they will claim that the Bible is just insufficient um, let me let me read for you. This comes from the book of uh, in the book of Mormon, First Nephi chapter thirteen, verse twenty six. And actually, let me just go to it here. First Nephi chapter thirteen, and starting in uh, verse. 26 it says, "Now this is a, this is a prophecy." Remember, I said, if you look on the bottom right hand corner of the page, you can kind of see when this was supposed to take place. This was taking place like around 600 B.C., 600 years before Jesus. And it's, and it's a prophecy about what's going to happen when the Jews hand over their scriptures kind of to the Christians is sort of the idea that he was working with here. He says, um, and after they go forth by the hand of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, meaning so after the apostles receive this, that's been once for all entrusted to the saints, and they sort of give it to the Gentiles or the church becomes Gentile. Um, from the Jews unto the Gentiles, uh, thou uh, seest the formation of the great and abominable church. Because remember, they believe the church fell away. The church ceased to exist for a while. Uh, they have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious. And also many covenants of the Lord have been taken away. Verse 28. Wherefore thou seest that after the book hath gone forth through the hands of the great and abominable church, that there are many plain and precious things taken away from the book, which is the book of the Lamb of God. So the claim is <clears throat> there were parts deleted from the Bible, many plain and precious truths and covenants, he said, just, you know, were distorted by the early church. Soon after the apostles handed off this faith, as uh, Paul says in Jude, that was once for all entrusted to the saints, it was perverted. Pieces were taken out. And so what Joseph Smith was claiming to do was, I'm going to bring all those pieces back <clears throat> that were there. Um, uh, and so that's why we have the Book of Mormon. That's why we have the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, these, these three additional texts to the Bible, because the Bible's not sufficient, according to the LDS Church. In fact, if you go to the end of uh, the Pearl of Great Price, there is what's called the Articles of Faith. And within Mormonism, there are 13 Articles of Faith. And uh, let, me, let me read for you number eight. This is the article of faith of the 13. It says, we believe the Bible to be the word of God. Unfortunately, there's no period there as far as it is translated correctly. Now, they also meant by that is as far as it was transmitted, meaning handed down correctly. And then they also go on to say after a colon, we also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. But there's a period there. <laughs> 
So if you have one book that's inaccurate and you have one book that's completely accurate, which one do you suppose outweighs the other? Yeah, the one that's accurate. And so it's this idea within the LDS faith that the Bible, yeah, it's the word of God insofar as it agrees with LDS theology to the degree it doesn't, that it is not the word of God and it needs to be corrected. The second claim is that the Bible can't be understood on its own. Okay, so the first one is, well, it's not sufficient, you need more. The second claim under this ad to the Bible is, yeah, it's the word of God, but you can't read it without us. You need sort of an infallible interpretation of it, sort of an inspired commentary, but you can't understand it without our literature. Um, Brigham Young, who was the second prophet, president, uh, seer, revelator of the, of the church, in one of his sermons, this is in the Journal of Discourses, volume 13, page 95. So this is a, this is a message or a sermon that he gave, and he said this in there. He said, I have never yet preached a sermon and sent it out to the children of men that they may not call scripture. So according to Brigham Young, he said, I haven't even preached a sermon that you can't say it's scripture. It's, it's, that, it's that good that my interpretation is, has the same level of authority as the Bible itself. Um, this was not something he said just one time. Journal Discourses, volume 13, page 264. Um, he says this, I say now when they, he's meaning his, his sermons, his messages, when they are copied and approved by me, they are as, they are as good scripture as is couched in the Bible. So that you need my interpretation of it. Uh, I've got a friend of mine who does a lot of this outreach uh, to different groups. And he was sitting down one time with some Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, he kind of proposed a thought experiment. He said, so, okay, let me ask you a question. Um, If if you took 100 people who had no particular religious affiliation and you dropped them on an island and you gave them each a Bible... And you came back a year later. He said, how many of them would be Jehovah's Witnesses? And he was surprised because the person he was talking to, this elder, said none. And he said, what are you talking about? None. Like, why would, why would none of them be? Um, he says, you know, isn't, isn't the Bible, you know, it's a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. It, 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 it shows us truth. And he said, well, they wouldn't have the Watchtower's literature to explain it to them. Well, that's... He's being quite, cons- quite consistent. Charles Taze Russell, who, who, was, who was the founder of the, of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, or what we call Jehovah's Witnesses, um, he said the exact same thing. Listen to his words um, in the Watchtower magazine about the studies in the scriptures, which is what they produce to, like, this is what you need to understand the Bible, studies in scriptures. Charles Taze Russell, the founder, said this, Furthermore, not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself, but we see also that if anyone lays the scripture studies, that's the Watchtower material, if they lay the scripture studies aside, even after he had used them, after he had become familiar with them, after he had read them for ten years, if he then lays them aside and ignores them and goes to the Bible alone, Though he had understood his Bible for 10 years, he says, our experience shows that within two years, he goes into darkness. He, he goes on to say, on the other hand, if he had only read the scripture studies, that's the Watchtower material, uh, with their references and had not read a page of the Bible as such, he would be in the light at the end of two years because he would have the light of the scriptures. See, 
It's a way of saying, you don't need your Bible, you just need me to explain it to you. Right? Don't, don't you bother reading it, just let me tell you what it really means. Uh, Christian science, I mentioned that one, this is the third kind of American homegrown religion, takes the exact same approach. Uh, Christian science's cornerstone book, just listen to the title. Okay, Mary Baker Eddy is the founder of it. So uh, Mary Baker Eddy's book, which is the kind of the cornerstone, this is the title. Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures. Key. Only if you have this key will you really be able to understand the Scriptures or, or, or you can unlock the Bible. Now listen to what the Apostle Peter said about the Scriptures. This is in 2 Peter 3:15 and 16. He says this. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He says he, he's writing about Paul and Paul's letters. This is Peter writing about Paul. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. And this is kind of interesting. He says his letters contain, I'm sorry, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. He says, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures, which is interesting. Peter, early on, views Paul's writings as equivalently authoritative with the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. See, the testimony of the Bible is that there is clarity to the Bible's message it does you don't you do not need some infallible group or organization to give you the meaning of it psalm 119 105 the psalmist says your word is a lamp to my feet it's a light to my path the testimony of the bible is that also that it's it's sufficient uh, you don't need that infallible interpreter listen to paul's second letter to timothy Second Timothy chapter three, he says this, he's, he's, he's talking to Timothy. This is like a young pastor, young church leader. And he's talking about saying, Hey, remember like from, from, from infancy, you've been learning scripture. And he says, think about how from infancy, you infancy, you have known the Holy scriptures. He says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all scripture, he says, it's God breathed. He actually, he, he literally uses that phrase. In the Greek, it's theonoustos, theos and pneuma. God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. It's useful for teaching. This is, this is all the sufficiency of it. Rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The great uh, wisdom literature of Proverbs, chapter 30, we read this. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then he says, do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and he will prove you a liar. Okay, so the first pattern, what's the first pattern of, of these groups? They add, add to the word of God. Okay, the second thing they do is they subtract from the person of Jesus. They add to the word of God, but they subtract from the person of Jesus. Now, this applies to all the persons of the Godhead. You could subtract from the Father, you could subtract from the Son, you could subtract from the Holy Spirit. Um, in fact, Mormons do subtract from the Father himself also. Uh, 
Joseph Smith in one of his most famous sermons ever delivered. It's called the King Follett Discourse, given in 1944, the year he was shot and killed. Listen to the listen to the statement he makes and see, is this a subtraction of the person of the father? He says, it is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God. Most important thing you need to know in the world. What's the character of God? And to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another and that he was once a man like us. Yea, that God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on an earth the same as Jesus himself did. And I and I will show it from the Bible. Subtracting even from the father within Mormonism, even the father himself, Elohim, they would say, is just an exalted man. So they subtract from the from the nature of God himself but usually this is about the person of jesus most groups tend to do this with the person of jesus um, jesus is nearly always reduced to something less than the eternal god man it's always something less than that um, in the early church interestingly enough the early church do you know what the first thing that the church had to argue against that's spiritual warfare according to second corinthians the first thing that the early church had to argue against about jesus it was this group uh, that, that we call today docetism. The, the Greek word dekeo means to seem, like something seems that way. And so the docetists said, oh, he just seemed human. He was God. <laughs> Everyone believed he was God. But I don't think he was really human. He just kind of appeared. It's sort of like a, like a hologram sort of thing. He wasn't really human. And the church said, no, 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 he's fully human. That's that's and so it was reducing the God man by saying, sure, he's God, but he didn't really take on human form. Well, who who is Jesus? Who is the Jesus of the Mormons? Well, he's a created being and the spirit brother of Lucifer. Who is the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses? He's the created Archangel Michael. The Archangel Michael became human during his incarnation, and when he died, he didn't bodily raise. He just became the Archangel Michael again. Who is the Jesus of the Bible? Listen to Colossians 1.15. It says, the Son, speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, firstborn in this context is in the same sense that it's used of King David. Now, King David, if you know your Old Testament, he's the youngest. He's called the firstborn. Firstborn doesn't in this context and in many have to do with birth order. It has to do with a preeminency. If someone is the firstborn of this, it means they're, they're the head of it, just like David was called that. The firstborn over all creation. For Now listen to this. For in him all things were created. There's no categories. Not most. Not some. Not the, All things that have been created. Things in heaven and on earth. Things visible and invisible. Thrones. Whether thrones or powers. Rulers or authorities. He's trying to come up with every category he can think of. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's not a created spirit brother of Lucifer. That's not the archangel Michael. This is the eternal God-man who spoke and our worlds leapt into existence. Uh, likewise, Paul writes to, to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. He says, we wait for the blessed hope. Here's our hope. He's saying, here's, here's what we're all waiting for. Every, every single follower of Jesus. We wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus. Paul called Jesus our God and Savior. 
And he was a Jew who didn't think gods can be created or that gods were finite. This is the infinite God man. So these groups, they, they add to the Bible. They subtract from the person of Jesus. The third thing they do is they multiply the requirements of salvation. Let me, um, let me read for you again in the Articles of Faith at the back of the um, Pearl of Great Price. Um, Articles of Faith, Article number 3, we read this. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, the atonement referring to Jesus paying for our sins, giving us his righteousness, wiping out all of our sins. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Okay? Everyone may be saved by what Jesus did when they're obedient, as they're, as they're holding to uh, obedience to the ordinances and laws of the gospel. Now, if that phrase seems odd to you, laws of the gospel, it should sound odd. There are no laws to the gospel. Okay? Um, groups typically have an unbiblical, and I would say op- unbiblically optimistic view of the human condition. Meaning these groups tend to say this. Well, people are really basically good. Um, and, and so we can, to one degree or another, kind of earn God's favor and God will grade on a curve. And be, we're, we're basically able to do what's right so long as our conditions allow us to and we're encouraged to. So these groups tend to, and this falls underneath this uh, multiplying the requirements of salvation, that typically they see the human person as capable of achieving some sort of approval by God by their activity. And it has to do with their view on the human person. Again, go back to Joseph Smith's uh, King Follett Discourse in 1844. He says this, Here then is eternal life. This is it. This is what eternal life is all about. He says, To know the only wise and true God, he's kind of borrowing that from the New Testament, but then he goes on, and you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves and how to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you, you know, going on. You have to learn how to be a god. You have to achieve exaltation by what, by what you do because you're capable of doing that. Um, groups will typically have a low view of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. They will typically have a low view of the atonement of Jesus. Um, within Mormonism, Jesus' atonement, which they don't say took place on the cross, they say took place in the Garden of Gethsemane, primarily. The, the cross is kind of what finished it, but the primary place, according to the LDS, that he really did any atoning work was his suffering in the Garden. Jesus' atoning work for you only gets you resurrected. It gets you to resurrection day with a body, period. Beyond that, you are on your own. You have better, got your, have, have better get your stuff in order. Because at that point, um, there's, there's nothing. His substitutionary death um, doesn't bring you, here's sort of a thick, robust Old Testament, New Testament word, righteousness. It does not bring you righteousness. Now contrast that with how Paul talked about what Jesus did for us. His, what his actions, how they really practically speaking, not some metaphysical, how practically impacted me. Romans 10.1, we read this. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God 
for the Israelites, so he's speaking about his Jewish family, neighbors, is that they may be saved. He says, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. Man, they're committed. They're all in. But their zeal isn't based on knowledge, meaning truth. Um, Since they did not know, here's this phrase, since they did not know the righteousness of God, Righteousness of God is that true interchange that happens and this approval from God. They didn't know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They sought to be good enough so God would approve of them for what they'd done. He said they did not submit to God's righteousness. So what is God's righteousness? What is it? Well, he answers it in the very next verse. Verse 4, he says, Christ is the culmination of the law. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That's Christ's righteousness. Jesus is the culmination. He's the final. Like you were shooting an arrow. Jesus is the target. All of the laws were pointing towards something. And it was Jesus' fulfillment of those laws. Jesus was good enough for you. Jesus was perfectly righteous. And all of those laws about what to do, there's there's ceremonial laws and there's civil laws and there's moral laws. All those laws, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament, the Jewish God. All of those laws, he said, are culminated in Jesus' work on the cross. Done. So when Jesus says, it is finished on the cross to tell us die, legal words for saying paid in full, he's saying it's done. It's completely paid for. There's nothing more you can do. Because I have completed it. The last note under this. um, Groups often also have an unbiblical view of eternity or of heaven. Um, You know, Mormons have three levels of this eternal heaven. And in the third level, there's even three subcategories. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses only um, allow 144,000, which they have been keeping track of. And that number has already passed. Um, only those people will, will actually spend present, be able to be in God's presence for eternity. All the rest of us, anyone else, any, in fact, any Jehovah's Witness living today, will not be in God's presence for all eternity. That 144,000 has already been counted. Their, their only hope is that they're going to live on an earth, but not with God. Not the Revelation 21, which says God's presence comes down and it's with humanity. It up there comes down here. Totally different picture there. Um, add, subtract, multiply. And then the fourth one, they divide their followers' loyalty. Um, All of us have hierarchies of loyalties, right? Uh, God, you uh, family, um, you may be part of a school, uh, an employer, um, you you know, communities, groups. All of us have different loyalties. levels or hierarchies of of loyalties but see here's the thing when a person joins one of these false or pseudo-christian groups um, they, they get them to buy into the premise that this group or person speaks for god that's what i mean by divide their followers loyalties primarily that this group this organization this leader whoever it might be this person speaks for god so your loyalty is to them and when it's to them it's to god is the idea you know jesus talked about this idea that uh no one can serve two masters you'll either love one or hate the other or or hate this one and love the other but 
you, you can only serve one master. Uh, Paul talks about us being bought with a price, this idea of being owned. I have one master in my life. <clears throat> but see, once you buy into this premise um, that this group or person speaks for God, everything else kind of falls into place. Uh, the group's words becomes God's words. Uh, the, the, the leader's words become God's words. The organization's words or publications or letters or whatever becomes God's letters and communication. Everything flows from there. Um, that's why uh, this, the, the past few weeks as we've been looking at the LDS church, the reason that we were using the LDS material is because here's my hope. Is that when, when my Mormon friend looks at this material, they, get, they ask the question, hath God really said? Or half meaning, is this really God speaking? Because right now, God's speech and the leadership of the church speech are the same. They're one and the same. And what if they're not? What if, what if they're not? Then all of a sudden, there's a break. There's a seed of, there's a seed of doubt. But... We don't even have to use, again, what they would term anti-Mormon material. I think we have this wonderful opportunity to actually use LDS printed material in order to help shift that view that God's words are not the leader's words. That we're talking about different allegiances here. Um, articles of faith. Let me, let me read for you again. Uh, the, go to it here. The, the fifth article of faith. This is what it says. Now, do you remember when we talked about uh, the four basic requirements, like the bare minimum that that uh, that a person must do within the Mormon system on this earth? They must have faith in Jesus, their meaning of it, repent, repent, uh, be baptized by someone holding the Aaronic priesthood, receive Holy Spirit by laying on of hands through the Melchizedek priesthood. And it has to happen in that way. It can't just happen anywhere. Um, the fifth article of faith says, we believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and to administer in the ordinances thereof. Um, it's, it's only by those who have the right authority. And you only find that authority in the church. And you'll only find that authority in the church in the temple. So it's, it's a very centralized uh, way of, of uh, offering power or offering authority. And so what you see in many of these groups is you see a high level of legalism. You see a high level of spiritual abuse. You see a high level of social or thought control. Um, often uh, they will divide families. I, I, I know someone who this is the case. This is not someone far away, but someone here in, in the Mormon church where, where the, the local bishop encouraged the wife because the man, I knew the man, he was doubting and come, had come to the conclusion that uh, Joseph Smith was a false prophet, that the church was not speaking for God. And the, the bishop encouraged the wife to, to file for divorce, to take the children away as pressure for him to come back. And he did, not, not, not believing, but he came back because he loved his children. That's the kind of behavioral control that will oftentimes happen because families are oftentimes divided. Um, they will oftentimes be authoritarian. You will be told who to marry, 
uh, when you can marry. Uh, Most importantly, there will be a mediator between you and God. There will be some type of priest in between you and the high priest Jesus. It it won't just be you connecting with Jesus, but there will be you and then someone else who will be a go-between between you and Jesus. And yet listen to Paul's first letter to this young man, Timothy, chapter 2. He said, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. You don't need any sort of priestly person to come between you and God. That's the whole point of what Christ is, and that Christ is the mediator. Christ mediates between us and the Father. So I can go, as the New Testament talks about, boldly into the presence of God, not arrogantly. Boldly meaning I'm not worried because it doesn't have to do with me. It has to do with another. It has to do with Jesus. That I go in with Jesus' goodness. I go in with Jesus' righteousness. And I have immediate access to the creator of the universe through the mediator of Jesus Christ. John 17, 3. Let me, let me read you this passage here. He, uh, he writes, Now this is eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. So John is recording Jesus' words. He says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, he's speaking of the Father, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Uh, Jesus also said in Matthew 7, he says, You know, on, on that judgment day, many people will say, Lord, Lord, you know, I knew you, right? Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do that in your name? Didn't I have your name? I used your name. I used your name. I had your name on this and on that. Didn't I do all these things in your name? And Jesus says, but I will tell them, depart. I never knew you. Now, God has all the academic data information in the world, right? God's all-knowing. Um, even if you talk to a Mormon, it's, yeah, he's, he's all-knowing of all this stuff. So he's not saying, oh, I... Gosh, I, I guess I missed you. I counted everyone, but I, you know, I didn't know you. No, it's, it's, not, it's not that kind of a knowing. He's talking about this, this sort of personal knowing that I can know a lot of stuff about people, right? I read an article this week. There was this was the stupidest thing I've ever read in my life. This person was saying that uh, pe- people in America have good reason to grieve over Brad Pitt and Angelina breaking up because they're invested in their lives and the... I'm just going, oh, my God, you know, give me a break. But this person was saying, no, because there's knowledge there. There's No, there's not. That's data. All you do is, that's just data. Now, you can know every, you could be their biggest fan and be on their fan page. And if you meet them and say, hey, can I come in? They go, I don't know who you are. Right? That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, you can use my name. You can think you're on the Facebook page. You can do all these sorts of things. You could have the bumper sticker. You could have your church named after me. It doesn't matter. If you don't know me personally, I don't know you. I don't have that intimate knowledge. You don't have that intimate knowledge of me. You might know facts about me, but you don't truly know me. Second Nephi in the Book of Mormon, chapter 25, verse 23 says this, For we know that it is by grace we have been saved after all we can do. Have you done all you can do? I haven't. I mean, do you ever get to the end of your day and go, I have done everything I could have possibly done today. 
Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Can, can anyone say, I have done, whether it be the end of their day or the end of their life, I have done all I can do in this area of my righteousness. That's scary. If, if we're saved by God's grace only after all we can do, we're all hosed. I, I'm hosed. Because I, I, haven't, I haven't done that. And I, don't, I can't imagine anyone arrogant enough to say that they've done all they can possibly do. Let me, let me give you just um, four thoughts and then we'll close. As far as I've had a lot of conversations with, with many of you who, who, who have said things like, I, I have a brother or I have a cousin or, or I have a child who, who, who is in this particular religious group or that particular religious group. So this, this applies, doesn't matter what group they're a part of, which would be one of these kinds of groups, which has added to the word of God, subtracted from the person of Jesus, multiplied the requirements of salvation, or divided the loyalties of the follower of Jesus. And I just want to give you four words to kind of meditate on, ruminate on, pray about, um, as far as your interaction, your engagement with these people. In your lives, the first word is prayerful. Um, it's God who grants wisdom to you in conversations, but it's also God who draws. Jesus said, "No one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws them." Now, it's my personal belief that the Spirit is actively drawing every single human agent on the planet. But it, the point is this: He is responsible for the drawing, not you. Prayerful, the second one is prepared. Uh, be prepared about your beliefs and theirs. Hopefully, one of the things that, that I'm hoping comes out of these past four weeks is that you and I feel a little bit more of a appropriate, healthy, not guilt, but a pressure of, whew, I'm, I'm not too, uh, I got to sharpen, I got to sharpen my saw, you know, I, I, I'm kind of lazy, if I'm honest with you, about my Christian apprenticeship with Jesus. Um, am I really prepared? And one thing that I promise you, I promise you, if you prepare, God will not let that go to waste. I cannot tell you that the, the very first time I was teaching high school, uh, I, I was teaching Mormonism. High school. I, had to, I taught in a Christian high school, and I taught this apologetics class, and it came to the section on Mormonism, so I'm kind of figuring out, okay, what's what, and, and I'm teaching the class. And I remember the middle of the week I said to the class, it was more theory, you know, but I said, if, if, you know, if you work and, you know, you get studied up that, you know, God won't let the go to waste and he'll use it. You know, I kind of said it like that and I went home. Saturday, that Saturday, I'm mowing my lawn and loving, like this, you know, and I opened it and I was like, hello. And it was like this moment, like God was going, mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my goodness, it's true. And, and, uh, and that was my first conversation that I had with a pair of these great young Mormon missionaries. And I have found not just that one time, um, I would tell you stories, but they're more personal ones. So I wouldn't do it even in these past few weeks. I have encount had encounters that were not planned that I could not have coordinated myself. If you give yourself to study and preparation, God will use it. I promise. I promise he will. Uh, number three, patient. Um, and what I'll just say with this is, if you become impatient with a person, ask their forgiveness. I've, I've had to do that many times with individuals sitting down with them, where I've said something, I've behaved a certain way, and the next time we've met, I've had to say, you know what, I was kind of a jerk last week. I, I'm, you know, would you forgive me? Patience. And then persistent. 
<clears throat> be persistent. Um, on average, uh, I got this statistic a number of, of years ago from a Kevin Bywater who engages in a lot of uh, religious uh, he, he would call it counter-cult ministry sort of thing, that on average it's between 3 to 30 years that it takes for a person to come out of an aberrant Christian religion. 30 years. <laughs> that's why patience is needed. That's why persistence is needed. And what I, what I my hope through, through these past four weeks that you've got out of this is not just, no, I hope it's not ammunition at all. I don't want it to be ammunition in the sense of attack. Um, I hope that you've got good information that has informed your Christian discipleship. I hope this has solidified your understanding of the gospel, too. Oftentimes, it's not until I see a counterfeit that I realize, oh, how wonderful and precious the real thing is. And maybe, if nothing else, that's been something, and it's kind of re-energized this idea of, oh, wow, the gospel's a, it's a powerful thing, but it's a precious, fragile thing, too. The gospel is so powerful, it, it can destroy anything, and yet you can pervert it like that. As Peter says, many people, even reading Paul's writings, do to their own destruction. And so my prayer is that we would have a deeper love for the gospel, that we would have pushed it deeper into our hearts through this process, that we would develop a deeper love for our Mormon friends, family, neighbors, acquaintances, associates, whatever it might be, and that we would move toward them with patience and persistence and all these sorts of things, but with, with a deep sense of trust in God's activity and an expectation that God will actually use this to, to change another person's life. He's done it to millions and millions of people, and he's still doing it. Amen? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for grace. But for the grace of God, go us. God, would you, any, the moment any of us, God, have any sense of self-righteousness, would you just smack us down from that? God, we want to live humble lives. Would you forgive us? for ways that we have sinned against our Mormon friends and neighbors, ways in which we have spoken down to them, would you forgive us? And God, if we need to go to maybe individuals and even confess that sin, prompt us to do that. But Lord, I pray that you would make us humbly bold to move out into Jesus' conversations, Jesus' community, that, that we would do the work of apprenticeship that, that we would have a ferocious appetite for your word, that we would develop a love for it, and that that would ooze out of who we are in our conversations. Give us your timing, your plan, Lord, and use and spend us well in your kingdom and in this particular community of Fort Collins. God, thank you for this opportunity we have to love our Mormon friends. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.